Hey, Scuttlebutt listeners, welcome back. This is episode 57 of Scuttlebutt, and uh, we are truly delighted to be welcoming Dr. Teresa Schultz and Dr. Amy Bodin-George from the the Defense Health Agency Hearing Center of Excellence um, on the show today to talk about um, audiology, talk about hearing loss, um, to help sort of get us aware of this issue and to advocate for any sort of preventative measures um, that can help you as leaders, listeners who may be experiencing hearing loss. Um, I mean, this can boil all the way down to just parenting and things to, you know, preventative things, just good practice for even raising your children um, or for you metalheads out there, how to survive, you know, the mosh pit and not, you know, lose your hearing <laughs> while also avoiding black eyes. So anyways, uh, doctors, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having us. We're really glad to be here talking to you. Yeah, this is really great. Um, you know, when um, admittedly, um, I'm just going to be honest with you for a second. When Nancy first uh, approached me about having you know, people from the Defense Health Agency and, and then you two in particular on the show. Um, sort of my first intention was for this just to be a what the hell is wrong with me episode <laughs> and just to sit here for an hour and get free consultation. Um, so <laughs> to prevent that from this being the Vic show entirely, um, maybe you know, and, and just thus delving into all my personal ailments. Can we just start with your guys' introductions, um, who you are, uh, who you are to the um, Hearing Center of Excellence and just sort of your journey uh, to get to where you are now? Yes, Rick, I'll, I'll be happy to start. This is Teresa. So um, at the Hearing Center of Excellence, I am the prevention and surveillance section lead. And that involves, again, sort of two parts, anything we can do to prevent noise-induced hearing loss. And the surveillance side is just looking at studies, doing some deep dive on our own to try and figure out where the problems are that we need to address. So I feel like my whole career has led to being in this position at the HCE. I, I started out when I was in graduate school at the University of Texas being interested in hearing conservation, which is sort of a a subspecialty within audiology, and um, have I've always been interested in that. And so when I started looking for a job, I talked to some people in the military, and you know they told me what was going on. And, and the military has a long history of leading in prevention of noise-induced hearing loss. So I thought, yep, that's the thing I want to do. So spent a career doing that and um, loved it all. Before I retired, I read a study that said officers went through an average of four jobs before they settle into something. So um, keep count here. So I retired from the military having you know, spent 20 years plus saving the hearing of soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. Loved what I was doing. So I went to work for a startup company out of Canada and eight months later, uh, they said, we can't pay you for the next few months. <laughs> can, you, can you just keep working for nothing? Because I know this startup thing isn't working for me. So I <laughs> <laughs> moved on and ended up with a few jobs after that. Um, I did some consulting for a little bit. I taught at East Tennessee State University in the public health department. I worked at the VA in Johnson City, Tennessee, doing research on hearing loss prevention. And then I got a call from NIOSH. There's a laboratory in Pittsburgh that focuses on mining safety. And they said, you know, would you like to come up here and, and do some work with us? And I was like, Pittsburgh? I don't think so. I hope I don't offend your Pittsburgh listeners. <laughs> took them a while to convince me to come up there, but they had a great program. And uh, so I went up there and started basically saving the hearing of, of minors. And so enjoyed that position, but um, I was right. Pittsburgh and me didn't get along. I'm a native Texan, so uh, a little bit too cold and wintry up there. 
so I ended up taking a job with a, uh, a company that makes hearing protectors and they said, you can live anywhere basically. So I thought, well, that's a pretty good thing. And they were doing hearing protection fit testing, which I was interested in. So I ended up taking a job with the company's changed name several times, but it's now Honeywell safety products. So, um, and then after doing that for 10 years out in industry, I had the opportunity to come back to the government to the Hearing Center of Excellence. And again, I feel like my whole career led up to this. I've always said it's my my passion to save the hearing of soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, and now space guardians. Yes. <laughs> and and so that that's my story and how I got here and why I love what I do. Well, that's interesting. That was in Texas. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that's really interesting because they always say you they they uh, can't hear you scream in space. So <laughs> <laughs> you got you got your work cut out for you. Yes, we do. <laughs> oh, sorry, get, get, go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to say very conveniently that was in Texas anyway. So, yep. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> and then, um, Dr. Amy, uh, how about you? Um, my story isn't quite as meandering. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, so I, I, my brothers both served in the military. One of my brothers is actually an expert or a former Marine, sorry. Um, and my dad was in the military as well. So I, um, just always had a, a respect for the work that you all do. I'm not myself a military type. So uh, when I got out of school, I went into private practice um, and worked with a neurotologist. And um, my expertise was not anything to do with military, but I saw how easy it is as a clinician, as an audiologist to get stuck in doing things the way that you've always done them, the way that they've always been done. Um, and so I did that for about, I did that job for about five years. And then, um, I saw this posting for a job with the hearing center of excellence, uh, in Texas, where my family is now, I'm from South Louisiana originally, but there, we're all here now and getting to work with the DOD. So I'm not military type, but I still get to serve, um, war fighters. So beyond that, having seen, like I said, getting stuck in the same old, same old, uh, as a clinician, I want to make it easier for clinicians to do their jobs, to be able to serve our war fighters in the best way possible. And I sort of grew up with the position. So it started out as the, the hearing center is relatively young, actually. Um, and I started with them in 2014 and sort of refined my own skills and what the position itself would be within the clinical section um, as I moved through different projects and so on and so forth. So that's really what the clinical section, I'm, I'm the lead on that. Uh, our job really is to find inefficiencies, to find new best practices and make sure that that audiologists and, and other uh, clinicians have access to those. Um, so, like I said, we can better serve our warfighters. Not quite as interesting and meandering a story, but nonetheless, <laughs> I'm here and I, I think we're doing some good work. Yeah, you know, you got uh, one of you took the more direct route, the other sort of. <laughs> <laughs> found your way but um you know we're so thankful for everything that you guys do um so yeah and then again thank you so much for being here and, and for sharing your guys' experience um so again like i guess maybe just if we just start at ground level on this um you know maybe we could start talking about some of the science of hearing um so i guess it, on the surface, it seems like this might be a softball, but this actually might be extremely complicated. But how does hearing work? So I, I have a story I will tell you about the amazing ear. Now, granted, <laughs> I, I might be biased. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's why you're on the show. Yeah. <laughs> but the ear truly is an amazing mechanism. So sound all around us is acoustical energy. So it, it's, a, it's a wave, basically like the waves in, in water. So that acoustic energy is all around us and it comes into our ear canals through this thing that's on the side of our head that we think of as the ear. You know, a lot of animals can turn their, this is called an oracle or a penna that's on the side of your head technically, but a lot of animals can turn that and help the sound come into their ear canals. We don't. 
we can't turn ours. Our, ours are really there to hold on our mask and our glasses. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that acoustic energy gets channeled down into our ear canal. And everybody's ear canal is a little bit different. And that ear canal is basically a tube that's closed at one end by the eardrum and open at the other end. And so it's a little resonator. So it boosts some of the frequencies and diminishes some of the frequencies and changes that acoustic energy as it goes through each individual's ear canal. As soon as that acoustic energy that's getting changed gets down to the eardrum at the end of the ear canal, it vibrates the eardrum. And so that, that vibration now makes it mechanical energy. On the other side of the eardrum, connected to the eardrum, are the three smallest bones in the human body, the hammer and the anvil and the stirrup, as they're commonly known. That mechanism basically works as a fulcrum and amplifies that mechanical energy from the big eardrum to a very small little membrane down at the, at the bottom of the, those three little bones. So now you've got a fulcrum that's amplified the mechanical energy as it's coming through the middle ear space. Then the, the sound, as it's come from acoustical energy and then turned into mechanical energy and got amplified, at the bottom part of that smallest little bone in the body, the stapes, it's actually a little pump that's pumping into the snail-shaped organ that's inside that, again, we think of as it's our inner ear. That's filled with fluid. And so as that little stirrup pumps into that uh, membrane there, it moves the fluid. So now that energy becomes hydraulic energy and it goes through the cochlea, that snail-shaped organ, and um, energizes little things called hair cells. They're called hair cells because they've got these little stereocilia on top of them that look like hairs, but they're actually little pumps and, and they, uh, they also amplify the sound as it comes in a little bit. So the hair cells are connected to another little membrane that actually take that um, what's been hydraulic energy now and turn it into electrical energy. It takes nerves and goes up to the brain. So electrical chemical kinds of responses that take that sound uh, energy and bring it up to the brain. And the, the brain is really where we actually hear. But what we've just talked about is that what happens, the way the ear works, to put it slowly now that I've told you all the details of it is it takes electrical energy or it takes acoustic energy modifies it in the ear canal turns it into mechanical energy amplifies it in the middle ear turns it into hydraulic energy which moves the little hair cells which then turn it into electrical chemical energy that takes the pathway up to the brain and the brain says that's Teresa talking or that's whatever it is and it then identifies what that sound is mm -hmm. now is that amazing or what <laughs> That's, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, I, uh, I think I it, missed the Schoolhouse Rock episode. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, Nick, you can catch a StoryBots episode on Netflix, and they actually go through some of this stuff. But um, to hear it sort of broken down um, in sort of chronologically, like the movement of energy uh, is really fascinating, and it really sort of... Um, in a way is humbling because it really highlights, at least to me, how much we take our hearing for granted. Like it's an extremely complicated process. Yeah. Well, and to think about that anywhere along that pathway, you could have a breakdown. If you have blast exposure, your eardrum is one of the first things that could go. You could have disruption of the little bones. You could have what we commonly know as noise-induced hearing loss. Those stereocilia don't work or the hair cells don't work like they used to any little breakdown in the structures along the way and it doesn't work correctly. So it's, it's very complex. And then when you get to the brain level, you're talking about the ability to tell which direction a sound is coming from, being able to identify in, in your case, enemy fire versus fire from weapons of your own uh, around you, um, telling the difference between our language and a foreign language. Um, being able to process, is that a meaningful sound to me or, or not? And, and being able to shut it down, like the refrigerator running in the background or the AC, being able to shut that sound down so I can focus on what's in front of me um, and what I need to be listening to. And that's all happening all at the same time. And we're just, I, you had another guest on talking about how many bits of information we're processing at all times. And it's pretty remarkable um, that we're able to do all of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely want to touch on that because um, we're referencing a, 
interview I had with Dr. Adam Hunziker mm-hmm. um, and the stuff that he had, like it was it was mind blowing. And so to sort of merge your guys' perspectives with his because he's in a separate field. But I, I want to definitely like with both feet dive into that rabbit hole. Um, but first, um, before we get into that, um, so what are you guys at the Hearing Center of Excellence? Like, what does all of this science mean for you guys sort of in your like day to day? So let, let me start with the mission of the Hearing Center of Excellence, and I'm going to start out in the boring way and read our mission, but then we'll talk about it a little bit and break it down. So the Hearing Center's mission, mission statement is that the HCE facilitates the development and integration of solutions to prevent, diagnose, mitigate, treat, and rehabilitate auditory and vestibular system injury and illness in support of readiness. So we break that down and basically what we do is we collaborate with others. So we work across the Department of Defense uh, with all the services. We work with VA, with universities, with other federal agencies, basically other experts that can help us to do what we need to do for the warfighter. The second part of that is to find solutions for hearing loss and balance problems. So we're always looking for new and better ways from the administrative part of things to new best practices and new hearing protection devices and new things that will make it easier for uh, warfighters to do what they need to do. And then our our mission statement ends with in support of readiness. And that's what the DHA is here for is we're in support of the warfighters. So that's the HCE mission. So I guess to sort of get ahead of the scuttlebutt, uh, as we are aptly titled. Um, you guys are, when you say support, like that that's in caps if we were texting. Um, you're not an obstacle to readiness, which I think a lot of sea lawyers and um, smoke pit intelligence officers <laughs> would have us believe that you guys want to keep warfighters off the battlefield. Is that Do you guys get that impression, or is that just... We, we hear that, but yeah. you're right. We, we are in support. We're trying to make you more lethal, more successful in the mission that you have. That's exactly right. Awesome. Um, and then, so you'd mentioned other agencies. Do you guys work with FBI, DEA, CIA as well, or is it only within the DOD? We focus on the DOD, but the other agencies we work with are agencies like uh, NIOSH and CDC and um, mm. you know, agencies that also protect people's hearing, but not within the military. So I'm, I'm also the now past president of the National Hearing Conservation Association. So again, a, a civilian organization that focuses on preventing noise-induced hearing loss in all sectors society. But here at the Hearing Center, we really do focus on the warfighter. Mm-hmm. So kind of just bouncing off of that, what's the information sharing like between like you guys and like a different group that's also trying to help with hearing? Is it just like someone's like, hey, uh, or like you've like you come through with a breakthrough, you just like blast it out to everybody? I get, how, how do you, uh, how does that work? That's a great question, actually. So we try to share, we have regular meetings with a lot of these different groups, but we also have um, Cavern. The collaborative auditory vestibular, which is your balance system, also located in the ear space um, research network. And so we can get together with other researchers across the DOD, across other agencies. Um, it used to be in a room, uh, not so much anymore since COVID. We're trying to get back to that, though, where we share exactly that. These are breakthroughs we found in research. This is what we're working on right now. Tell me what I can do differently to make sure that I get the outcomes I'm looking for. Um, and so spreading that awareness of what other people are doing so that we're collaborating really specifically uh, focused on, on um, like I said, better outcomes and um, a stronger study. And is there anything else I'm missing? No, but that that's, yeah, we, we do have working groups where we meet regularly with these people. And to some degree, the, the the audiology community, especially the hearing conservation community, is a little bit of a small pond, and we all know each other. <laughs> so we we do reach out to the usual suspects, but, you know, there's occasionally a new fish in the pond. So it's it's always nice to learn the new things that are going on. Mm-hmm. And if you, uh, I guess, I don't know if this would come through you guys, but if you're, there's something a little bit more on the, on the fringe that you want to have, like, research, do you, like 
sneak into the universities and be like, hey, you got any kids that want to research this or how do you kind of push know, the envelope? A very good question because one of my military colleagues emailed me a couple of weeks ago and said there's this student who's interested in audiology student interested in going into hearing conservation would you be willing to talk to her and um i have a meeting with her i think later today <laughs> to do to do some mentoring so yes we do reach out and help you know the students who they need to do a, a project to graduate from their program and yes we work a lot with those folks just to you know take this little piece we're already building this story if you take this little piece it would add to the the literature yeah that's really cool um and so I, one of the things that you had mentioned was balance and this is an interesting thing and and again uh i guess we're sort of eking into the conversation we had with dr hunziker but he had mentioned that one of the things that I don't know if it flies under the radar or not, probably not for you guys, but I think from a sort of a corporate understanding of uh, what we're experiencing now with sort of aging veterans um, is that a lot of people who experience who are suffering through PTSD and TBI, they fall a lot. Mm -hmm. And I never had put that together but you're saying because hearing occurs in the brain, it, there's also a there's a balance issue there too, right? Could you guys talk a little bit about that? I'm gonna let Dr. BG address that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. So the the actual the all that stuff that she was talking about with the ear for hearing exists in the balance system as well. So there, I'm gonna bore you with anatomy for a second, but there are three semicircular canals that they sense whether where your head is in space and um, there are organs also that sense if you're moving up or down or forward and backward and any plane in between there. And that's one part of your balance system. So you also have uh, proprioception, which is like your feet on the ground. You're, you're, you can feel what muscles uh, need to control if you start to sway. Um, and then in the brain, your eyes also process information. So your eyes, your eyes and your ears are directly connected. If I turn my head to the right, my ear, my, my vestibular system can sense that. And my eyes will uh, adjust. They'll keep my, my focus on the front. And those muscles are linked directly through neurons, through nerves to your ear. Um, and so what starts to happen, I think, with TBI is those systems can get disrupted where the nerves aren't firing quite like they're supposed to, but then you add things like neuropathy. If you have diabetes, your feet can't feel where you are on the floor. Um, you have vision loss or anything like that, then you can start to feel um, or not be able to see. And, and it all just kind of gets scrambled and, and that can definitely contribute to falls. And so what we're really talking about here is a network. And I mean, that probably seems very intuitive, especially to, uh, you know, in the medical community but i think for us on the street like that isn't quite as intuitive right like but what we're really talking about is a system of systems and they're yes. all mm -hmm. interconnected in, that's exactly right, that, right. Yeah. good way to yes. describe it very mm -hmm. good way yeah and if, if the same thing with the ear we talk about the anatomy of if one thing goes wrong on that pathway but that's absolutely true of the balance system as well if you're if you're experiencing like i said difficulty feeling where you are or seeing where you are in a room if it's dark especially uh, you have to rely on those other systems and if they're not working then yeah you're you're more likely to have a fall or or at least feel sort of unbalanced unsteady and and there's no like i, I guess like um Hey, I guess I don't want to say balancing because I don't, but there's no like sort of recuper, like a recovery period, right? Like, is that like, oh, I just need a good, I need some liberty. I need to take some leave and sit in a quiet room and then my hearing will slowly come back so that next time I go out to the field, um, I'll be sort of back to where I was so that if I, so basically what I'm saying is, the hearing loss that you'll experience compounds. So if you've lost a little bit, the next time you're at a loud concert, that's going to happen. Or you, you, so you're just going to go through all these things. It's going to continue to degrade, degrade, degrade. Is that right? It, it is. And noise induced hearing loss can really happen in, in two distinct ways. One is that cumulative effect. So you're exposed to a bunch of noise, you get a temporary hearing loss. And your ears are, again, that's an amazing part of what the ear does. It can recover from that temporary threshold mm. shift. 
So the analogy we often use is when you walk across the grass, the grass gets bent down, but then it comes back up. So that's oh, okay. that's what happens to those hair cells. They, they get damaged a little bit, but then they come back up. And the technical term for what you need to do that is auditory rest. You know it is quiet. <laughs> basically that that's where you know the temporary hearing loss gets better but if you do that over and over and over again day after day week after week year after year you you basically end up having like the cow path so the grass is is dead there now the, the hair cells are dead and they're they're not going to return from that and then the other kind of hearing loss that's sort of the gradual noise induced hearing loss the other kind of hearing loss that we see in the military is that impulse or, or blast, impulsive or blast exposure, where, you know, we've talked about at, over time you have the cow path, but in a short period of time you just, you know, dig up the yard. <laughs> yeah. And there's yeah. no grass there. So um, those are the analogies to the, the two different kinds of hearing impairment. And and yes, there is some ability to recover with auditory rest. And even on the balance side, there's some opportunity to recover from those kinds of exposures. And there's rehabilitation for that mm -hmm. as well. Some, you know, really scheduled rehabilitation to help you get, um, you know, the sea legs back again, basically. So would an SOP sort of thing like, hey, if you're on a, you're on a patrol and you get into an engagement, would it be worthwhile to say, hey, after you debrief and you talk to everybody about what you experienced, now I need you to go into a quiet room for a couple hours? Like, is is that is that not enough? Are we talking about like prolonged silence? The uh, the temporary hearing losses occur usually or recover usually within the first few hours afterwards, and you don't have to have you know complete quiet to do it but just, don't put on your earbuds and start yeah, jamming exactly. that's that's where i was going with <laughs> for your this. metal heads make sure yeah. the yeah. <laughs> stay out of the mosh pit for a little while right. yeah yeah okay well that i think that's helpful um so it was we we're talking energy then does the ear have like you were talking about sort of acoustical energy is there a way that the ear or is there even such a thing as being able to differentiate between the types different types of energy or is it just taking all the energy and then transforming it into what is usable then so the the peripheral system that the ear that we talked about where it's you know going down the ear canal doing the eardrum doing the bones doing the the hair cells that's all called a peripheral system and sound is sound coming okay. into there. It's, you know, whether it's sound you like or sound you don't like, which we call noise or really, really loud sound, which we call hazardous noise. Yeah. <laughs> all of that sort of comes in the same. The system doesn't discriminate. It's the brain. Yeah. It discriminates what's, what's the good sound and what's the bad sound. But there are so many, as we like think, I think about like, um, waveforms like we're discovering almost a universes that we can't necessarily perceive that still exist as we talk about sight um, energy radiation etc cetera, etc cetera. is just because you can't hear it doesn't mean you're not still experiencing the energy though right like just because you can't it doesn't register like yeah. it still is I don't know they would make you put the uh, little shields in your flip phones because they're like, oh, the radiation is going to get in your ear from your flip phone. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> well, that, well, I guess what I'm thinking probably more applicable is um, like a blast. Yes. And, so you, and that's where I was going to go to answer your question. So the waveform looks and behaves and is characterized very differently between an impulsive or blast sound mm -hmm. and just a loud sound of you know a generator or whatever a and it damages the ear differently and we have different uh damage risk criteria you know what how much of it can you have so um for impulse noise impulsive noise we look at things above 140 db peak and we even label the decibels differently. They're called DB peak for impulsive noise because there's really a huge amount of energy. And then, the, you know, it's it's because it's quick. It's, you know, nanoseconds of sound. 
but above 140 dB peak is where we start to see some damage of that. For continuous noise, it's all the way down at 85 dB A, continuous noise. Again, different way of measuring the decibels. Um, and remember that the way we measure decibels is logarithmic. So the difference between 85 and 140 is huge. Every 3 dB is twice as loud. So that's a huge difference mm -hmm. between the two. But the characterization, because the impulse noise is so short, it, it is, it, it's handled completely differently than the way continuous noise is. And your ear responds to it in a, a different way. Mm -hmm. So for small arms fire, if you had, you know, one unprotected exposure to a, a very small caliber, a, a 22, you may end up having some temporary threshold hearing change from it, but it's probably not going to be permanent. But if you, you know, you don't shoot 122. I, I'm a, I have a target range in my backyard here, and you don't shoot 122. Oh, Texas. You shoot hundreds <laughs> when you can afford the ammunition. And so, <laughs> so, so it's that repetition of that that adds to the risk. So where one may not cause permanent damage, lots of them are going to. And so you need to be protected when you're doing that. Now, when you start to get to the big caliber weapons, you know, the, the shoulder fired maws, those kinds of things, one exposure unprotected could permanently damage your hearing forever. So one of the things I was thinking about with this and having been a, um, a met guy was like a 50 cal, for example. Now, Obviously, you're not, it's not shoulder fired or you're not getting stock weld on it. So you're not necessarily right next to the ear. But I mean, you could feel the vibrations from that. And that's energy, right? So I mean, right. that's, that's all doing stuff to you, even if you, you know, were, you know, savvy enough to put in your hearing protection before you start rocking and rolling. Mm -hmm. There's, it's still going into the brain. It's still going into your skull, right? And rattling it around. Am I mm -hmm. making too light of that or? No, I think that's exactly right. I think you're, you're right on target there. And um, one thing I do want to talk about while we're talking about this is the hearing protection. Even if you do put the hearing protection in, are you putting it in correctly? Yeah. And are you um, are you doing it the same every time? Uh, that's Dr. Schultz's area. I just want to make sure that we touch on it while we're here because I think it's so important. Absolutely. And especially as we're you know we've we're looking at um, modernization, updating all of our equipment as you guys have seen probably all over the news. Um, when we talk about helmets, we talk a lot about you know blast resistance, survivability. But as you look at the way that they're designed, they're not covering the ear. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I know, but you know, in the pre-show, we sort of joked about like, "Hey, everybody, take a time out, put in your hearing protection. <laughs> if you guys survive this thing, you know, I want you to make sure you're not having a lot of hearing loss." So because that doesn't happen, is there? Are you guys looking at equipment, or you, is there some research on a way to integrate hearing protection in with these new? You know, high speed, low drag helmets. Yes, there's there's a lot of work being done on that. And you know, when we think of earplugs or hearing protection, we often think of sort of the passive, either that foamy earplug yeah. or an earmuff. And and those are great hearing protectors, but they have the downside to them. And the downside is they really do take away the whole localization, especially earmuffs, because although I teased about, you know, the penna on the side of our heads not doing much for humans, it does do a little bit of localization for us. And so when you have an earmuff over it, you, you can't localize. And so th those are some of the downside of those passive hearing protectors. But there are other kinds of hearing protectors that allow you to hear what's going on around you. There's one called a nonlinear hearing protector that basically has a hole in it. It's an earplug with a hole in it. Um, so it allows sounds to, to go, go in so you can hear, you know, say at the range, you can hear the range master, but as soon as a weapon fires, it actually, uh, there's either filters or electronics inside those kind of hearing protectors that close down the hearing protector. And now it's protecting you from that impulse noise. So That's amazing. there are different hearing protectors that do that, both in earmuffs and earplugs. Of course, they're a little bit more expensive than a foam plug. 
but not everybody needs them all the time. Um, in a forward deployed environment, you, you might want to have that. So yeah, yeah. yeah. And there uh, are some really high-end products. We refer to them in the military as TCAPs, Tactical Communication and Protection Systems, TCAPs, um, that are designed to amplify some sound around you so that you can hear the whether there's somebody around the corner here <laughs> as you're clearing a room. Um, so it, it can amplify sounds, but also protect from those impulsive sounds that you're exposed to. And again, the more features and high end of these things you get into, the more expensive those protectors are. So it's not something you would issue to everybody, but you need them in those certain environments. And is there yeah. like a decay rate on those more advanced ones? Like they're good for a while and they kind of lose effectiveness. So how do you track that? No, they're, they're, uh, you know, unless you step on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're, we are talking to Marines here. So. Yeah, we are. <laughs> always have to factor in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it Marine proof? I know. We do always have to ask that question. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the best way to test anything. Is just to Lance Corporals for a week. <laughs> You'll learn all about its durability. Um, you know, that's the thing is, if you're going to use this kind of different hair and protection, you need to train with it yeah. and know how, how it's going to perform. And I, I think, frankly, that's a lesson that we've learned over the last decade or so, is that you need to get it in the training environments and make sure people know what to expect from their PPE, when they're, their personal protective equipment, when they're out using it, they've, they've practiced with it. As I, I was thinking about, like, you know, as we're shifting into, um, you know, doing more war gaming simulation, you know, we've shifted away from the long war where, you know, guys were just going out to the field. The workup cycles were really intense. There's a ton of like, obviously, prac at because you're just in the field for six months at a time before actually going on your seventh, seven month, one year deployment. So the the use of PPE was really very uh had become very much a habit now as we're shifting into sort of the more cerebral side of training and looking at opportunities um to train without this long logistics footprint i think dr amy's point about using the gear correctly and then sort of also in what dr Teresa was talking about with these new technologies it becomes really important that leaders are finding ways to integrate this equipment and so it's not being used improperly right that's exactly right. And this is something that Dr. Schultz's team is working on. We have, uh, please talk about the evaluated products list and, and the work you're doing there. Yeah, so it, the unappropriately named evaluated products list <laughs> basically is, a, is a, an effort that we've had to try and, and find the right hearing protector for each service member and for their what we call hearing critical task, because every service member has probably one or more tasks that they really do need to hear what's going on. They either need to localize or they need to hear a warning signal or they need to hear communications. So we need to look at what those hearing critical tasks are and find the right hearing protector for each of those kinds of environments. So that that's the thing that we're moving toward. And an, another interesting development that we are working toward at the Hearing Center of Excellence, again, with the services, is toward fit testing hearing protectors. So that goes back to Dr. VG's comment of, are you wearing the hearing protector right? There's some cool technology that's pretty readily available these days that gives you individual feedback where you can fit your your hearing protector and find out is it really protecting you or how much is it really protecting you and and get a number for that so you know there's the number on the package of the earplug but are you really getting that the way you wear the earplug and this fit testing allows you to do that so there's a new ch change coming in the um the dod instruction that will then be implemented in all the services to have people be able to fit test their earplugs at least initially and find out what they're what they're getting from their hearing protectors and then if they do have a change in hearing a significant change in hearing you'd have uh, a requirement again to fit test and make sure that their their hearing protectors are working for them um yeah i think that is so important um is you know because you last thing you want is the first time that you're using the equipment is when you actually 
have to use the equipment, right? Like, yeah. um, you want there to be a level of uh, familiarity at least, but hopefully proficiency. Um, so yeah, that's really great that you guys are doing that and pushing that down. Um, what's the feedback been like on that? Are, are, are services, service commanders, uh, very open to this, or are they just seeing this as just like another thing that they got to add to the kit? You know, I, it's, it's so new that it hasn't really gotten out to that level yet. Okay. Um, but I really hope they see it as a tool to help them make sure they're they're taking care of their troops. So the, the whole purpose of the hearing conservation programs and each service has its own hearing conservation program. We do have a DOD instruction that's sort of an over overarching um, instruction or regulation about hearing conservation, but each service implements it a little bit differently. And so one of the big things that each service's hearing conservation program does is try to ensure that the right equipment is issued in, in that right environment. And interestingly, the Army and the Marines have everybody included in their hearing conservation program. The Air Force and the Navy include only service members who are exposed to hazardous noise. And, and some of those things are starting to change in policy as well. But, you know, again, I'm not going to predict policy changes. Um, but ha having the being in a, a hearing conservation program just give, gives you the resources to make sure you're you're getting the right protection that you need and hopefully providing the information that those commanders need to be able to protect their folks. Yeah. Is all that, that, oh, that going to be on the commanders? Or is there any kind of like self-starting that you're looking at from the individual warfighters? For the fit testing, um, it, it will be a part of the hearing conservation program. So it, it will be up to the services to decide actually who conducts the hearing protector fit test. Um, you know, there's some some analogies to respirator fit test. When you have to wear a respirator, it has to be fit test. And, and so there are some analogies to that. But it doesn't really even need to be a medical person that does a hearing protector fit test. It, they're pretty easy to do the, the mechanism of actually testing the earplug. So we're not sure how that will be implemented within the services yet, but it's uh, it'll something that will be a part of the hearing conservation program. Cool. Yeah, it's it's so critical um, that we focus on this. Um, one of the things that I found interesting um, from Dr. BG was mentioning was the localization. I guess both of you had talked about this localization issue, and I, I will now delve into my own personal ailments here. But um, so well, I, I, I suffer uh, from a condition, and I, I, I wish I could like use the actual terminology so it didn't sound like I was making this up, but um, it's it's strange in that I can pass a hearing test and, and when I go into the booth and, you know, I can hear some of the, you know, the tones and things and come out and they say, yeah, hey, you're good to go. But then when I'm in environments where there's a ton of just ambient noise, I, I can't hear anything um, like if I'm in a crowd, for example, I have a hard time differentiating voices or who's actually talking to me if I don't actually see you or like at home when someone's running the vacuum cleaner, I, I just cannot, I can tell that someone's talking, but I don't know if they're talking to me or if they're just talking to each other. Like, so this is, it's really frustrating to me and, and especially to my family. Um, is this a thing that you guys are seeing or is this just a Vic problem? No, 100%. It is It is simultaneously not all in your head and it actually is all in your head because it's your brain. <laughs> yeah. It's your brain and your ear. So we call it, generally speaking, uh, a hidden hearing loss because we're not exactly sure at the moment whether it's the the process between the the organ of hearing the cochlea and the the nerve endings that then go into the brain right after that um without getting too deep into the research around that there's some evidence in animals that if you have noise exposure that that connection breaks down and we're just not sure we haven't been able to do the studies the way we need to in order to see that connection in humans to know exactly how that works in humans but so there's, there can be a breakdown in connection there as a result of noise-induced hearing loss or blast exposure. But then we talked earlier about all the, the what the brain does to process the sound. So it can shut down, I said the, the, the refrigerator, it can shut down the sound of the air conditioner in the background so you can focus on what you need to. 
So as you go up the brain, there are more structures and more nerve bundles that can become damaged and you can lose the ability to, to shut down um, those other sources of sound. And, you know, you need to be able to use both ears effectively and, and your brain has to integrate all that information, again, to know what's important, what's not important. If you have any little bit of hearing loss on top of that, so you may not have a hearing loss, I'm using air quotes, you may not have a hearing loss in terms of being able to hear the beeps uh, and the tones in, in the booth, but you can have a little bit of shift in what you used to have. Uh, so it used to be, you know, you could hear everything perfectly at the lowest sound possible that the, the audiometer can make, but maybe now the audiometer has to turn the sound up a little bit more for you to be able to hear it. And, and that, while it doesn't show that you need a hearing aid or anything like that, it can still cause you to not process sound in the same way that you did before. And we see this all the time. This is a common complaint. I can hear, but I cannot understand. And, you know, we have a lot of patients show up, um, service members show up, especially later in their careers and veterans show up that my wife is, the, you know, has been frustrated. My family's been frustrated because I can't understand them. And everybody keeps telling me there's nothing wrong, but there's something wrong. And, and that's that hidden hearing loss piece. So it can, it's a really a central, uh, central processing problem. And, and, and so you're saying we're still sort of in the early throes of this. And I know, uh, you know, talking to Dr. Hunziker, um, you know, there again, with the system of systems, it's like trying to nail this thing down uh, is almost a Herculean task. But have you guys, um, I mean, are you seeing any progress? Is there a way that uh, if there are others that are experiencing this issue that they can, is there any solace or is it just like, hey, like wait this out, we're working it through? Sure, yeah, it's, it's so while we don't understand exactly what's going on, it doesn't mean we can't help people get to where they need to be. So um, even just a little bit of hearing loss, uh, we can treat with hearing aids. And even if you don't have uh, true hearing loss, like I said, in terms of hear hearing the beeps, if it's a persistent enough problem um, and you, you maybe also have tinnitus, which is something we haven't touched on yet, uh, which is yeah. ringing in the ears, um, then we've seen that hearing aids can be super helpful for people to give them a, a little bit of a little bit more input so that they don't need to, their brain doesn't need to work as hard to shut down the sounds around them. Um, so there are things that you can do. There's also auditory training that can be done. There is just communication tips too, honestly, like you don't need, you don't need a hearing aid necessarily, but if you're going to talk about the finances, your relationship or anything else that's really important in your, in your relationship, make sure the vacuum cleaner is off, make sure the, the dishwasher isn't running right next to you, move to a place in the house that's a little more quiet so you can focus if that's possible for you. Um, if you're out in uh, in public, sitting in a restaurant with your, uh, a place with good lighting so you can see people's faces better, um, so you can get the those cues to help you um, sort of complete the message. You can get what you're hearing, but also see what the person, how their lips are moving, so on and so forth, their gestures to know what the mood is, things like that. Um, so there are things that can be done at the patient level. I can, behaviors that I can change too, and it's so hard to do, but communication repair is another thing where, you know, you, you want to say, huh, you want to say what, <laughs> I didn't hear that. But the, the I guess, better thing to do um, is to say, I heard you say that the kids need to go somewhere at nine. I have no idea what the somewhere was. Can you, can you <laughs> fill that piece in? And it makes it a little easier to repair rather than saying what and the person having to start all over again. Um, and I see a lot of, or I have seen a lot of veterans. That the thing that I always say is if you, if you, those sweet nothings don't mean the same if you have to say them three times. <laughs> so yeah. Um, just those, I heard you say this, what is it that you actually said, or what was that piece that I missed can go a long way to try to, to make the other person feel that you're at least trying to understand. Um, and then of course the, the person that you're talking to, uh, we always say, uh, speak 10% slower and 10% louder. You don't need to yell at me, but I do need you to make sure that you're speaking up a little bit and slower, uh, so that I can hear, you know, the difference between each word that you're saying especially if it's an important conversation. No, that's really great, uh, really great advice. Um, but yeah, if we can shift gears just a little bit then and go over into tinnitus, um, you know, what is it? I think 
everyone who is familiar with the term just associates it with the loud ringing in your ears when there's no noise, right? Like, is is that all? Is that oversimplified? No, no, no. That's pretty much what it is. There's no sound source external, and your your ear and your brain are perpetuating this signal. Um, and it starts usually there's that those hair cells that we were talking about earlier. They're not getting inputs, and so they your your brain wants to have something, and so it will create its own signal and it perpetuates it and most people experience that on some level you'll get like after you leave a a concert uh you'll have everything kind of sounds muffled and you'll have ringing in your ears but the next morning you wake up and it's gone and so people don't think much of it you can also just like if you have too much salt or caffeine or your blood pressure is high you can just have have have, uh ringing in your ears temporarily that goes away after a few minutes and then it doesn't happen again for like six months or something um, so most of us experience ringing in the ear sometimes. Some people experience it more often that, than that for various reasons. Um, and most people aren't bothered by it. Most people can go on about their day. They, they have little tips and tricks that they use on their own. I have a fan that blows at night so that I can listen to the fan instead of the ringing in my ears. I, um, I always have music on in the background while I'm working so I don't have to pay attention to it. And, and those sorts of things can be really helpful for most people. Um, and if you think of it like a pyramid, um, you have, most people aren't at the bottom of the the pyramid. Most people who have it aren't really affected by it. It's just part of their lives. As you move up the pyramid, you have fewer and fewer groups of people or, or numbers of people who are impacted by it. And as you get all the way to the top of the pyramid, you have people who it, it, it impacts everything that they do. They hear it all the time. And if you have something like PTSD and the ringing started after whatever incident you had, then that can, can lead to, to issues with PTSD as well. And so, um, you know, it, it affects a lot of people. It's the, it's the number one service-connected disability in the VA. And it's not just a veteran problem. We know that. Um, there's a program called progressive tinnitus management that takes the same idea of the pyramid of people are, are more and more bothered by it as you go up the pyramid, excuse me, that people can get the services they need at the level they need. Uh, so if you start down at the bottom, I got a hearing test. I have a little hearing loss. It's, it's not, it's not a tumor. (laughs) And um, I know that it's just related to my hearing. I can move on. And then you go into more formal education where you're talking about the mechanisms of the ear and the brain and how that works. And for some people that's enough and that's fine. I can, I can, I can take that information and move on. And then you move up a little Mm -hmm. further and people uh, may need a little more education and then more tips and tricks. And then maybe some behavioral health comes in and talks about mindfulness training or uh, um, bits of cognitive behavioral therapy where you're changing how you think about the ringing in your ears and its impact in your life. I'm, I can't sleep and you're, you're overgeneralizing the ringing in the ears being the cause of that. Let me reframe that a little bit. And then beyond that, if you need more services, there are uh, devices that you can buy online or that the audiologist can prescribe for you, um, sound pillows. They have speakers actually in the pillow that you lay your head down on so that you get sound in your ear while you're sleeping. At well, a that's low fascinating. Level. Yeah, it's at a low enough level not to be harmful, um, but for people who are really bothered, it can be very helpful. Um, and then beyond that, if it's still a problem, then behavioral health can get involved and really try to help the person through. Because uh, unfortunately, we can't cure it. There's no cure for it. There's no medicine you can take that will lessen it. There's no, um, there's no way to just make it go away. But we're working on that. We're definitely working on that. But until we can get that having the person uh, understand that it's it's not indicative of anything wrong it's just it's something that you have to um manage exactly yeah so when you say uh behavioral therapy you're talking like meditation or maybe uh, Maybe, yeah meditation is one thing that can be helpful it can reduce your stress level reduce your blood pressure high blood pressure can can cause ringing in the or um make ringing in the ears worse. Um, but also, like I mentioned, the cognitive behavioral therapy, instead of just let me tell you about how to use it, I might do longer term therapy with the person about their particular problems, their particular issues. Um, so it's it's uh, mental health, behavioral health, actually, oh. like psychologists getting involved to, to try to help the patient. 
So and just the, for my own, sorry, Vic, this is a really important question. Because <laughs> I've been this? doing this for 34 years, I've been calling it tinnitus. Oh, that is, is an important question. It's so important. And my family <laughs> will tell you that I correct them. I'm again, air quotes, correct them. I say tinnitus because tinnitus to me sounds like something in, is inflamed, like, like uh, tendinitis, bursitis, bursitis, or, yeah, like something yeah. that's inflamed and it's yeah. not inflamed. It's spelled differently than that as well. Um, but you can say it absolutely however makes sense to you. Both are said even among researchers and professionals. Um, it is. It seems to me to be an East Coast, West Coast thing. Oh, really? Yes. Because, because on the West Coast, they generally pronounce it tinnitus. Okay. And on the East Coast, tinnitus. <laughs> that is so true because all the times that I, when I was going to all the places on the West Coast, they would call that I just understood it as tinnitus and no one ever corrected me. And then I came here uh, to Virginia and then everyone was calling tinnitus. So I just figured I'd get on board. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah, however you want. Um, being by coastal, it's like, yeah, on one side, you're like, yeah, that's nice. It's, yeah, that's right. You need to pick So I guess to that point, um, you know, the talking, you know, still focusing on the, the tinnitus issue. Um, there are, at least from my experience, I have that, you know, periods where it's just constant. And I obviously, uh, it, it is most pronounced when there's no sound. All of a sudden it's like, wow, this is really bad today. But then every now and again, I'll get like this pulse where it'll just like click and then I'll just get this really loud ringing and then it'll go away after about 30 seconds to a minute. Is that common or is that another Vic thing? No, the, the 30 seconds real loud, it, and it almost feels like your ear is shutting down. That is a totally normal phenomenon that people with completely normal hearing who've never had noise exposure have. That we have no explanation for it. Oh, okay. But that is not indicative of anything further. The constant ringing is, yeah, probably as a result of noise exposure. Okay. You know, Dr. BG mentioned that pyramid of tinnitus sufferers, and, and that's important to think about because almost everybody that you talk to will say, oh yeah, I had that ringing one time. <laughs> and and so that's the bottom of the pyramid where there, you know, basically the whole population is in that part of the pyramid. But as you go up into the pyramid, it it's where the tinnitus is impacting your life. You have it more often. It's impacting your life a little bit more. And then you get to the top of the pyramid. And, and those are the people that are you know, either debilitated or nearly debilitated by tinnitus. And that's a very small number of people. Mm -hmm. But, and, and again, those, there are treatments for those kinds of folks. But because you're in one part of that pyramid doesn't mean you have to stay in that part of the pyramid. So um, you mentioned that you notice it, you know, at some times it's worse, especially when it's quiet. Well, that's definitely the case. But it could be that, you know, if you are able to just do some of those I, I'm using air quotes now, treatments, but the mindfulness, the just trying to not let it bother you as much or not let it associate with bad things as much, you can move yourself to a lower part of that pyramid. And we, we call that habituating. You, you basically, I, I hate using the term you learn to live with it, but that is what you do. Yeah, um, right. You habituate to it. It's, it's, tennis in some ways is like pain. And so it, you know, you can, you just manage it. It's there all the time, but you don't pay attention to it. You just move on with your life. And, mm -hmm. and that's what habituating is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that, um, I think management in some, you know, lexicons gets a bad rap, but I mean, we manage so many things in our lives. Um, but yeah, I think that's a good point is that we have to like sort of take the stigma away from that, you know, uh, cause it isn't just a, I suck it up cause we don't care. It's no, a, you gotta, you're going to have to wait this thing out while we figure this thing out. That's exactly right. It's not a get over it situation. It's like we have tools and techniques and, and that, that have proven to be successful in people so that they can learn to live with it. It's not the same thing as get over it. Yeah. Well, I find, I know, and, and doctors, I really, really appreciate your generosity uh, with your time. This has been so great and I could spend hours with you all, um, talking this through, uh, but I did want to sort of like loop this into awareness and, you know, what can we do? Because I feel like as we're talking about this, 
at least from when my time when I was in, is that it was it was seen as sort of a stovepipe issue. Is you had a hearing thing, you had post traumatic stress thing, you had you know bad knees and joints and back pain. That was a you know that go see the physical therapist for this, go see the Oscar for this other thing, go see the audiologist for this thing. But as we're looking at this thing as a system of systems, it seems like what we're really talking about here is we're looking at veterans, um, combat veterans, those suffering from post-traumatic stress. And as we're all sort of getting older, um, we're looking at now that we're talking about uh, almost a amalgamation of frustrations. Like, oh, I'm so frustrated because when the weather changes, my knees hurt. I'm so frustrated because my wife or my my kids get mad at me because I can't hear when they're telling me about their day because the dog's barking when they come in the house and uh, you know uh, and then you know and then obviously uh, I'm I'm still dealing with my post traumatic stress and then those frustrations turn into anger and now we're looking at you know sort of a disillusionment we're looking at disconnectedness uh-huh. we're looking at compounded impacts on quality of life I mean. I, I don't know if I if it's possible to overstate this, but it seems like there there needs to be a synergy of treatments or of awareness on this stuff because it's not going to get better as we get older. You you make a very good point, and you know talking talking about awareness, there was recently an analysis done at the Office of the Secretary of Defense level that looked at what are what is the the biggest risk for service members and civilians. And it turned out being hearing noise, hearing loss is is the biggest risk. Basically, noise is the biggest uh, risk that we have, and and it's because it's so pervasive. It's so many people that are affected by this. Mm-hmm. You know, really, people aren't dying from hearing loss, but it, there's so many people that are affected by it negatively, one way or another. And again, we we talked earlier about how it's a comorbidity with other things that are going on in your life, be it mental health or physical pain or, or whatever, that, um, that it, it's a very pervasive thing. And so we, we as audiologists are, are always trying to just remind people about hearing health in general. And there, there are so many things that we can all do as individuals just to protect ourselves, to, to turn things down and, to not have those earbuds in for, you know, 20 hours a day, but, but maybe mm-hmm. lessen the time of the exposure or the volume of the exposure to just manage your amount of, of exposure that you have. And just to be cognizant of when it's too noisy and, and you need to do something about it. So, um, you know, that, that's that's the awareness part of things. And interestingly, it's uh, it's good that we're talking in October because, there are, there are several points in the year where audiology and hearing conservation communities try and do some awareness raising, but October is one of them. It's National Audiology Awareness Month. And so it's a time to promote good hearing and balanced health by just t- set, telling people what the profession is. Again, we're a, we're a relatively small pond and a lot of us know one another, but um, we want to get outside of our pond and let other ponds <laughs> know yeah. about the importance of, of hearing health. So this is an annual observance that started back in 2008. Um, the Academy, the American Academy of Audiology started it. And so we're, we're happy that you were able to include us during this particular month to, to add to that awareness of hearing health and have us all be think of our hearing as an important thing. So one of the things I'd like to, to do is um, a question that I, I used to ask people because I, I have done a lot of training in hearing conservation. And, you know, there's the annual requirement to do the hearing conservation. And you do that to a room full of people and they're sitting going, ho hum, I've heard this before and they're going to sleep. But, but my way of trying to get that message of preventing noise-induced hearing loss is to get the individual to think about how their hearing is important to them. So there's a few ways to ask the question. One of it is sort of a game sort of thing, and I'll I'll start with that one and then I'll go to the second. So I'm gonna have you two answer and just blurt out your answer as quickly as you can, okay? Three questions. First one, what's your favorite color? Blue. What's your favorite number? Four. What's your favorite sound? Heavy metal. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, but there was a delay there. You, you hadn't you hadn't thought about that before. No, I had my microphone was muted. I wasn't participating. I'm sorry. That's, that's, <laughs> I was just too fast. That's one way to get people to to think about it. What is your favorite sound? What's a sound that you really enjoy? But turning that around to to take it fairly seriously is what is a sound that if you could never hear it again, your life would be degraded. Yeah, I mean, that, that's such a good, I mean, because really now that I think about it, it's like, well, I could always do without heavy metal, but I couldn't do without, like, hearing my kids laugh. Oh, that's all, that's what we hear a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a good one. I are like the sweetest guy I know. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's just for the show. Once the microphone's <laughs> off, I'm the biggest asshole. <laughs> we, we won't tell anybody. Yeah, please don't. <laughs> Well, doctors, this has been so great because um, I, I, I really like there's so much else I want to dive into, especially when we talk about brain function, TBI, um, you know, some of the societal issues. You know, we look at the NFL just having a ton of uh, problems with TBI. Um, and then, you know, I, I mean, like every high school in America has a football team. And for those of us, those of us who have played, like when you get your bell rung, it literally sounds like you got your bell rung. And so that's just a ton of energy on the brain, even if the helmet is helping you with the concussive parts of that energy. Uh, I don't know if it's going to do much for the what your ear is of, is being affected by that, um, those types of collisions. And so. Uh, and just just how the brain processes sound um, and those disconnects from, you know, explosive concussive blasts. It's just so much. So if we can get you guys back on, I would love to dive into this more. But this has been such a great um, in, informative uh, episode. I just really so appreciate your guys' time. Thank you so much for having us. We really enjoyed talking to you. Thank um, you. Yeah, thank you. Nick, did you have anything? No, I'm just mad I didn't participate in the little shout-out game. <laughs> you want to play again? No, no, no. Yeah. I'm gonna go with yeah, I go with purple babbling brook and uh, 53 <laughs> and whatever. Babbling word. brook, just the thing you said, babbling is fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, again, thank you so much. Um, best of luck to you, and like seriously, we'd love to have you guys back on sometime. Let us know. We'd love to be back. Thanks. Thank you. Have a Thanks, good day. Guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Scott is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. We have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Leatherneck magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scottlebutt are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.